You're now listening to episode 130 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli joined here with Darren Joseph, a partner at Advanced American Tax. He's part of an international tax team that works with six, seven, and eight-figure international entrepreneurs and expats to legally minimize their global tax burden and protect their wealth. In today's episode, we discuss international tax and asset protection implications of investing in foreign real estate, the challenges of investing in foreign real estate, and why United States real estate is highly sought after by foreign investors and more. Before we dive right into today's episode, we do want to let you know about the new Tax Smart Real Estate Investor community on Facebook. It's the one-stop shop for real estate investors to learn about tax strategies and stay up to date on changing tax laws. With nearly 400 members and counting, there are a ton of conversations taking place right now. Join today by visiting www.facebook.com slash group slash Tax Smart Investors or by searching for Tax Smart Real Estate Investors on Facebook to make sure you're not missing out on major opportunities for tax savings. The link will be in the show notes below. We look forward to seeing you there. But for right now, let's jump right into today's episode. Darren, thanks so much for taking time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background? Hi, Thomas. Hi, hi, Brandon. It's it's a real opportunity to be part of your show. Thank you for that. In terms of my background, so my name is Darren Joseph. My full name is Darren Joseph. I run a small U.S. tax team out of Singapore. I've been in Singapore for the past seven years. I'm a part of a larger practice that, uh, called Moore's Rule in Asia Pacific. So we have like 30 offices across 12 Asian countries. So as far north as Beijing and Tokyo, all the way down to Australia. And I sit in Singapore. So it's an accounting practice. So you would do all the things you would expect an accounting practice to do. My team, we look after international tax in general, but U.S. international in particular. And I know you guys do a real estate podcast. So in that context, we do both inbound and outbound, which will be Asians investing into the U.S., as well as U.S. exposed investors into Southeast Asia. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I believe you said you were joining us from Singapore today. No, I'm actually not in Singapore. I'm in uh, Lisbon, Portugal. But uh-huh. yeah, I, I kind of move around a, a little bit. But I'm officially a, a long-term resident of Singapore. Just with the whole COVID-19 thing, my movements have to be a bit different right now. Yeah. Of course, understood. It's definitely definitely a worldwide yeah. issue. Would you be able to just briefly walk us through the process and requirements for U.S. expat or an American expat who needs to file taxes while living? Over? Okay, uh, so so not real estate in particular, just a, a regular U.S. expat. Sure, uh, it depends. So at least in our practice, we divide them into two categories. There'll be those who are employees and those that are employers, as simple as that. So the easier category would, of course, be the employees. So aside from the normal schedules that you'd be accustomed to, there is uh, like a Form 2555. So the foreign income needs to be declared separately. And of course, you get to offset foreign tax credits against your U.S. tax liability. And because of the Financial Tax and Compliance Act, otherwise known as FATCA, there's enhanced 
information disclosure, which means that uh, there's an additional form called an 8938, which kind of replicates what's on your FBAR, the foreign bank account report. So every U.S. exposed person, all things being equal, they need to declare the bank accounts that they have outside of the U.S. And because of the Form 8938, it's not just the bank accounts, but the financial accounts as well. So it could be like mutual funds or any sort of investment structure. So there's a lot of disclosure. The inter- international tax is a bit counterintuitive. You'd think that with domestic taxes, the emphasis is on, well, you know, I, I got to pay these taxes. Well, with international taxes, the emphasis is on information, getting the information to the IRS in the right way, because you don't pay, you don't pay taxes, okay, interest and penalties, but you don't disclose your foreign investments. It can lead to civil, if not criminal charges as well. That makes sense. So it sounds like basically if you're investing overseas that you do need to ultimately disclose your foreign assets when you file your U.S. tax return. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. All right. So kind of moving a little bit onto the real estate investing side of things, what are the major tax considerations for a U.S. citizen who's looking to invest in, say, Southeast Asia, Europe, or somewhere in Central Mm -hmm. South America? Wow. I guess the thing is that I really would encounter someone who is U.S. exposed and they're avid real estate investors and they're hunting internationally for deals. The reason why is that, again, I know it's dangerous to paint with a broad brush, but the yields in the U.S. tend to be higher. All things being equal, Soteris Paribus, right? The yields in the U.S. are higher. So what we would find is someone who's just being opportunistic. So they are living, they're working abroad, and hey, they heard about a deal in, in Bali or in you know, the Philippines or, or Malaysia or whatever, and they get in on that deal. So that's typically how, how it works. We'd be part of a team that will involve, obviously, a local broker to you know, they get, make sure that the compliance and the regulatory stuff is observed. From a U.S. tax perspective, it depends on the nature of the investment. For the most part, it's not so different from if it was U.S. domestic. I mean, you get, depending on whether you hold it in your own name or structure, we always advise a structure. You get the business deductions that come along with that, and you can extract the, the revenue as dividends, or maybe it's a capital gains play. So you just let it continue for whatever period of time, and then you, you flip it and you sell it and you exit that way. So it it really depends. So one thing that is a bit different from within the U.S. is control in that for the most part, a foreign investor can invest in anything in the U.S. You know, they can buy anything they like. I know that there are are concerns if it's something that's considered to be of strategic importance or infrastructure or close to defense. But other than that, any piece of real estate is fair game. Whereas outside is not necessarily that way. So for example, in Southeast Asia, probably Malaysia is the only jurisdiction I could think of where a foreigner, including a US person, can buy what we call land rights. So a landed property they can buy. For the most part, for the other jurisdictions, you can buy air rights. So like condos, but nothing, no no ground because of foreign ownership rules. So there are workarounds around that, including structures. But so, so yeah, uh, I, I guess in summary, it's more opportunistic as opposed to, hey, I'm a real estate guy and I'm looking overseas. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So, so basically, you don't see a lot of U.S. investors actually investing overseas quite often. It's more or less, you, you see more 
um, foreign investors looking to invest in the United States? Well, because of what we do, our practice is a fair amount of both. But I guess if I were to try and sit back and gauge market size, I would say there's a greater appetite for foreigners investing into the U.S. than there is an appetite for U.S. exposed persons investing outside of the U.S. That's what I mean. But as a practice, because of what we do, we, we have our hands in both. Can you briefly kind of describe the process of a foreigner wanting to invest in the U.S.? You talked a little bit about the structure but what about yeah. some of the tactical stuff? Because I, I know that we we get foreign investors every once in a while who are trying to figure out how to set up a bank account and mm. even that type of stuff. Can, can you talk about that briefly? Sure, absolutely. Uh, it's about understanding the investor and what their end game is. Now, everyone has different flavors or whatever. And, and we tend to be, they tend to come to us, obviously, after they've found a deal or they've seen an opportunity. And then, hey, you know, can you guys help me be tax efficient and smart in approaching this? The biggest challenge that we have will be dealing with, and I'm trying to be politically correct, awkward situations. So pre-COVID-19, of course, there were quite a number of real estate syndicates or real estate gurus who had best-selling books on Amazon. And they basically have a roadshow that they just go around Asia. And uh, I mean, the yields are good. I mean, for the most part, that's real. But they kind of like exaggerate the claims and exaggerate the scale of the opportunity and how wealthy you'd be when you get on the US market. And their processes are a bit sloppy. So we try to guide uh, would-be investors uh, on the right process. So, for example, there's such a thing as escrow. So you don't transfer the funds directly to the guy who's on the stage pitching the investment to you, not to directly to his bank account. Uh, and we advocate the use of LLCs. You don't hold anything in your own name. And that's not necessarily for tax efficiency but for asset protection. And we look at it in terms of inside protection and outside protection. So inside, you know, tenant slips and falls, whatever, you want a legal barrier in between you and, and that situation. On the outside, you know, you're involved in other business deals. If you can afford to invest in the US, chances are you're doing well, you know, you're doing all right. So you don't want anyone being able to come after your US investments because of some of the grievances that, that they have with you. So, you know, just sort of like an education piece and keeping them on the right track. So in terms of operationally understanding, you know, what is your end game? Is it about the dividend yield? And the way Asians work, and again, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but the way they conceptualize real estate perhaps is different from Westerners in the sense that it is a way of storing wealth. It's a safety, it's psychological, it's emotional. Whereas a Westerner and just being general, you're getting a bit of money, you might buy a yacht, you might buy bigger cars or whatever. The average Asian is thinking, I need to buy a third, fourth, fifth property. So I, I just pile in real estate. It's a store value. There's not like a buoyant stock exchange for the most part. There's no NASDAQ, there's no S&P 500. So if I want to safely store wealth to address inflation or you know political risk or whatever, I'm looking at international real estate and the U.S. is particularly attractive. So we would help them with the LLCs and we also help them understand from the tax side 
some of the, the things that other tax teams tend to forget, such as estate taxes. So yes, you think about income taxes. If it is just an LLC, then it's personal. If you're using a, a, some sort of C-Corp, then it's corporate income taxes. We know, hold on, in the U.S., there are essentially like debt taxes. So if, you know, when unfortunately you, you pass on, your, your kids, your successes would have a bill. So you may want to create a structure that considers that and probate avoidance as well. So we tend to use offshore companies as well. Uh, offshore to the extent that they're not in the U.S. So you'll have an LLC that's owned by a Singapore corporation or a Singapore private limited or an LLC in the U.S. that's owned by a company in the Caribbean, Cayman, BVI, and so on. So we work, we get the EINs, we get the ITINs, we get the structure right, and we work with the attorneys to get everything the way it should be and to be consistent with their specific needs. So the major takeaway I, I, I kind of got I took away from basically this entire conversation so far is that uh, United States real estate is pretty much the go-to place for people who want to invest in real estate. It's not too common to see people investing in other areas of the world because of yield, uh, return on your investment being one issue, and also the inability to actually own land as a foreigner in some of these other countries makes it hard for, for any investor who's a foreigner to invest. Um, if you are a U.S. citizen and say you do actually invest in one of these kind of countries, um, what type of entity structure do you as a U.S. citizen want to establish, generally speaking, for the average investor with no out-of-the-park issues? Again, just like on the inbound, on the outbound, the same thing holds true. One size can't fit all. So it really depends. It's jurisdiction specific. So a structure that you may want to use to hold a piece of real estate in the Caribbean or in Hong Kong might be different from Bali or Indonesia, right? So we would work with our counterpart or tax counsel in that jurisdiction who can advise, okay, I come to the table. This is what that U.S. exposed person needs to consider. Tell me what are the, the dynamics of Indonesia, and then we'll come, okay, so then we'll need to create an Indonesian PTPMA that could be held by a Singapore private limited, for example, and then U.S. persons on the backside of that. So one size doesn't fit all. We try to tailor make each structure. It sounds expensive. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it just sounds like, you know, when you're investing out of the country as a U.S. citizen, I mean, there's just, you got to take into account a lot of different factors. And when you factor in lower returns and then all the additional, I'm sure, tax and legal aspects of it, you have to ask yourself, is it even worth to invest uh, internationally or should I just, you know, invest in U.S. real estate and then just go buy some international stocks? And that's how you can get some exposure to the international markets. <laughs> Well, I didn't mean to paint such a dismal picture. It's not as, from, from my perspective, being biased, again, coming from that Western mindset, doing business in the U.S. is much easier. And the yields are better, generally speaking. But in pockets in other international markets, sometimes the yields are good or sometimes just the growth you know, the opportunity for capital gains uh, in some emerging markets. So I've seen amazing opportunities, for example, in Manila and the Philippines. And people talk about Cambodia. I haven't been exposed to anything there, but I've seen stuff happen in Manila. I've seen stuff happen in Hong Kong and in Singapore. And people have done amazingly well, you know, just by buying at the right time. 
So it's more of a growth gain rather than I'm going to sit back and enjoy rental income. And I'm talking about residential here, maybe commercial, maybe different, but yeah. So you mentioned LLCs earlier. What is the best entity structure? And I know that there is no best. It depends on your factual circumstances. But in general, if I'm investing, if I'm a foreign investor, I'm investing in the US, when should I be looking to use LLCs? When should I be looking to use C corporations? Gosh, it really depends on, on what the, the game is and what you're trying to do. For most investors on the lower end, so I guess for us, we get involved in what, high six into seven figures. It's probably going to be an LLC. And it'll be one LLC per property. And that LLC is in turn held by, let's say, an offshore company or maybe a trust, uh, Singapore Qualified Trust, a BVI, whatever the case may be. Can you yeah. explain that? Why why would you hold it with an offshore trust? Well, for a number of factors. So we spoke about asset protection already. The other two things are privacy and tax efficiency. So privacy, not in the sense that anybody's up to anything nefarious, but some people are genuinely in a situation where they need to be private. I mean, they'll disclose everything and they pay taxes or whatever. But if you live in a jurisdiction where kidnapping is a real risk for you, you don't want it known by anybody just doing a random search on of Delaware LLCs or whatever that you own, whatever you own, right? So you may want to use, uh, I don't know, Nevada, Wyoming, or you may use an offshore company on top of that, which has the added benefit of, well, they will see that that LLC is owned by XYZ BVI. So that's the privacy element. And then some people are a bit nervous about the US government knowing what they're doing. They just want to be private that way. But we won't work with anyone unless they're like being squeaky clean because we have our license. We, you know, we, we want to do things the right way. So they may have other reasons for wanting to be private. And then in terms of taxes, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, there may be a tax treaty benefit. So if you're in Southeast Asia, well, there's no tax treaty with Singapore, Malaysia, but there's one with the Philippines, there's one with Indonesia, there's one with Japan, Australia, New Zealand. So you may want to create a structure which keeps in mind that there is a tax treaty benefit. So in that case, even though an LLC might be the default, you know what, I'm going to go with a C-Corp because I can get the dividends out at such a reduced tax rate you know, rather than uh, qualified, it could be qualified dividend tax rates as low as 5%, depending on, on what it is. So I would look at what the intentions are. I would look at the jurisdictions in play to see whether there are some treaty opportunities that we can exploit. And then, of so, course, as I mentioned, there is the, the estate taxes as well. And that's where using an offshore uh, company could avoid, legally avoid, sometimes not one size fits all, uh, U.S. estate tax, and as well as probate as well. So are you going to say something? Yeah. So, so the treaty thing, are you basically saying that you can reroute the income through different countries to benefit from treaties? Depending on the nature. So ordinarily, no, because according to international tax rules, there must be a business reason for using a jurisdiction. It can't strictly and only be for tax benefit. Uh, but there are opportunities. The way, stepping back before I answer that question, let's speak generally now. The way international tax works is that, at least in my limited, humble opinion, 
is that it's a constant cat and mouse game. There are a bunch of high-priced lawyers who look for opportunities. And when they find it, they exploit it on behalf of their clients. And then the jurisdictions realize what's going on and they pass legislation to plug that hole. By then, the lawyers have moved on to the next one. Right. So it's it's you know, you just you just constantly stay, trying to stay ahead of the game. So there are structures, especially for the higher net worth investors, uh, for example, family offices, typically out of Singapore and Hong Kong, where I remember there was the portfolio interest exemption and you can structure your funds to pass through, for example, Luxembourg. And so I think I I was not too close to the lawyers who would do something like that, but essentially it allows you to structure the investment as debt and it will, let's say it dramatically minimizes the U.S. tax exposure. So that's an example of routing your funds through a jurisdiction in which maybe you may not be resident or you as an investor may not be resident. But ordinarily to answer your question, you there with tax treaties, there are limitation of benefits clauses, which are intended to prevent treaty shopping. So you need to genuinely be resident there to invoke that treaty on your behalf. What if a U.S. business opens up like a bookkeeping firm in the Philippines and reroutes income there? Is that worth it for a U.S.? Because I know U.S. tax you on worldwide income anyway. So is that even worth it to explore, or yeah. is it just a now? Nah, it's just a you're just passing, you're, you're playing a game of cups, you know, just moving the cups around and it's not actually going to do anything for you at the end of the day. Like, I feel like it's probably the latter, but I also see a lot of U.S. companies do that, larger U.S. companies. So maybe at scale there, there's opportunity. And that, to me, that's precisely how the world works. I think it was probably started in 1980s or so. Whether you think of it as geopolitics or the tax code or, or whatever, an incentive was created for offshoring. And now a lot of the, the discussion and rhetoric has been around manufacturing. So, for example, Detroit or there are certain parts of the U.S. which had a lot of great manufacturing jobs, and those have gone at first to Mexico, but then to Asia and China in particular. But the same and perhaps a lesser story in terms of visibility has been services. So, for example, I was talking to a recruiter who recruits for U.S. tax positions, and he was saying that there is his perspective. It's just one person's perspective, right? So take it as you will. That there's a crisis of succession in terms of U.S. tax professionals in the U.S. The reason why is, from his perspective, historically, the big four were a training ground for U.S. tax professionals. They, they go in, they, they do their thing, they complete the CPA, and then they go off into industry. And, you know, they're like a feeder, like a big organizational feeder. Now, those same big fours, whether you know it or not, they probably do all their heavy lifting in, in India until less extend the Philippines. What that means is that there's an explosion of CPAs and enrolled agents in India versus the U.S. So people who are trying to recruit that skill set may not necessarily easily find it in the U.S. because they're not being trained there anymore. So I say that to answer your question it's been happening. Uh, and thanks to the internet, it's not something you don't need to be a big multinational, you know, whether you're using one of those platforms like Fiverr or one of those freelancers websites, or you go to an outsourcing firm and say, this is what I'm doing in the US, uh, whether it's payroll or bookkeeping or whatever. Can you get me a team in country XYZ 
to do it for me more efficiently. And it's not just the fact that you're going to be paying less in terms of salaries, but think of all the payroll taxes and the extra, you know, the benefits and whatever. It's not that you're exploiting because for these countries, and I'm saying it as someone who has spent time moving around the Philippines, these people are paid way more than the average wage. So for them, I mean, they are, they're doing pretty well and they're being well compensated for their skills. So it's a win-win situation. At this point, what else should U.S. investors know about you know, just international and general tax implications of them in investing internationally that we haven't already discussed, if any? Well, let me see. In terms of outbound, make sure that you work with reliable local brokers and whatever you're trying to do. And that kind of goes without saying. And then, of course, uh, the idea of finding someone who is reliable is an art and a science in itself. But, you know, you need to do that, obviously. Make sure you get advice on the front end. So before you get into whatever it is, make sure you get advice from both a U.S. perspective and a local perspective. And then, of course, make sure you keep up with the compliance on the back end. And I say that both for inbound, you've asked for outbound, but I say I think the same principle applies for inbound into the U.S. as well. And if I'm being completely honest, we probably make more in terms of fees cleaning up a mess rather than preventing a mess. Agreed, 100%. It's always like Benjamin Franklin says, an ounce of uh, prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I could not agree more with that that, that sentiment. Um, we've, We've done the same thing here. We've worked with clients who didn't set stuff up the right way. And it's always more expensive, more time consuming and more painful to fix it on the back end to do it the right way the first time. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, hey, Darren, how much do you know about US code section 469? Uh, Doesn't ring about what is it? Uh, The passive activity loss limitations for rental real estate. Yeah, uh, I'm vaguely familiar with it. You know, material participation, active participation. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know how that works internationally? Like if I, if I'm a U.S. investor, buy property internationally, the passive activity rules, how that comes into play? It'll be hard for me to think of an outbound investor that we've worked with that has invested in his own name. So they will, generally speaking, use a corporate structure. So then you, the conversation really is about carrying forward losses yeah. from a corporate perspective rather than on an individual tax return. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's, to me, it's a rule of thumb. I, I know it's dangerous to generalize whether you're inbound or outbound. Don't do things in your own name. And it's not a tax conversation. It's just asset protection. It's just protecting yourself. It's just, it's not worth it either way. All right, cool. So what about the mm-hmm. foreign investor investing in the United States? I know that there's the rules around effectively connected income. And if you're not effectively connected, then you've got this withholding tax that you, that's mm-hmm. withheld at the source that you never get to see again. And then there's considerations on filing a tax return versus not filing a tax return. Can you kind of talk to us about what a foreign investor should be aware of from a tax perspective whenever they're investing in rental real estate in the United States, whether it's like a a syndication or whether or not they're buying their own property? So syndication fund, buying their own property. How does that work? How how do the taxes work? So as, as I think I mentioned previously, we spent a lot of time cleaning up stuff. So someone pitched them something really amazing and they just jumped in with their eyes closed and they didn't do it the right way. So I say that because that withholding, that FDAP withholding, uh, which is the 30% withholding, that would only happen in my mind 
if you didn't get good advice on the offset, mm-hmm. right? Because even if you're doing it like at a bare minimum, you had an LLC and, and which is treated as a, a pastor, you would elect for that to be treated as effectively connected income. And you, you, I mean, you do that from day one. That is just really basic. But sometimes you were not advised and there's a mess and you need to make that election. So I agree with you. Definitely, that's if you have that basic structure, that that's something to do. As to that part, that so it will be effectively connected income, but I put that in the context of a wider structure. And it really depends. It really depends whether, you know, there is, for example, some people would elect to put it in a C-Corp. And well, thanks to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, uh, corporate tax rates are, you know, relatively low. So it could be attractive. And then there is a part of the code that allows tax-free liquidation. So when at the end of your journey with this particular piece of real estate, you liquidate the, the C-Corp and you're able to pull the investment plus the returns out. So you didn't take any dividends along the way. You just pull everything out at the end. So it could be that, or maybe you, you're saving it for your kids. Maybe, you know, so it will be part of a larger structure, which fits into the facts and circumstances of what you're trying to achieve as an outside investor. But at the very minimum, yes, ECI. Okay. Are there limitations on ECI? Like when can you not elect effectively connected income? Like passive rental real estate, even though I'm not materially participating, I've got nothing to do with it. That could still be ECI, right? Uh, yeah, I believe it is. I've, I've heard about something called land banking, which is a kind of a syndicate, a, a kind of syndicated investment. So you go in with hundreds or maybe thousands of other people, depending on how big the investment is. And I've seen really unusual structures like that. So in some of those cases, if you went in with your own name and maybe it will be just subject to withholding, but generally speaking in like the the regular family, family office that's going to buy real estate, they're going to do it through an LLC. The LLC is going to be held by something offshore, whether that thing offshore is, is a trust foundation or company. And it will, you will elect for the income to be treated as effectively connected income. Great stuff. Really like it. So do you know much about Puerto Rico? No, I don't because nobody wants, nobody I know wants to live there. Nobody wants to live. <laughs> I mean, the one, the benefit, the one, the tax benefit of it, ooh, it's yeah, yeah. but you have to live there and like, oh man. Yeah, it's just so everybody, everybody's listening. Uh, I'm by no means a, an expert on, on Puerto Rican tax code, but I've had a number of inquiries about this. And, and the reality of the situation is to make this work, you have to move to Puerto Rico and live there for at least 183 days. I'm pretty sure it might be 184, but basically yeah. six months out of the year. And you have to sever most of your ties, including banking relationships, your primary residence from the United States. So that means you, you really need to become a Puerto Rican resident and actually live there and become a Puerto Rican. And, um, usually once we have that conversation with most people I talk to, uh, they're like, yeah, I, I, I like I I, I kind of like where I'm at right now, <laughs> and that's usually the end of it. But but, just, but what are the tax benefits? Assuming that I could do something like that, uh, I'm not too close to it because of the fact that you have to live there. So I never had to really dig into it. But your both your earned income as well as your your passive income will be a dramatically reduced tax rates. But if if you were to take Puerto Rico to the equation and just think internationally. Just by moving out of the U.S., 
you benefit from the foreign earned income exclusion. So depending on where you are, that could be like 150, 160K that will be sheltered from U.S. tax, you know, which, which, is, which is a decent benefit. So there are benefits, I think, to just living and doing business internationally, being an international entrepreneur, an expat. Uh, as opposed to remaining in the U.S. I mean, we're seeing that arbitrage going on right now with the the, Calif- the so-called California exodus to states like Texas or New York to Florida, right? So it's just taking that arbitrage to the next level. So yes, I've just eliminated state taxes, but I can also eliminate the first hundred plus of my federal income taxes uh, for that income by just moving out to the U.S. and uh, Section 911 foreign and income exclusion. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there, there's opportunity out there, but you gotta be willing to move and actually make make that move. And I think that's at least from my experience, um, that has stopped a lot of the people I've spoken to about it, but I'm sure, I'm mm-hmm. sure if you look at the numbers for some people out there, that the numbers could be so great, the tax savings that is to be exact, um, would motivate them to do otherwise. So it's been a great conversation so far. I can't lie. Yeah, and and you know, just to add what you to what you've just said, this year, you know, now that work from home or remote working is now the new normal, right? So if I had to be in New York City, I had to go to the office in Manhattan. Well, no longer, you don't need to do it anymore. So some people are saying, well, I'm going to move to Florida, and then some people are saying, you know what, I don't need to be in the U.S. And I was speaking to someone this morning, my time who was talking about the influx of Americans into Barbados because they have a one-year visa thing and, you know, you can set up shop. And again, you get not just tax benefits, but the lower cost of living as well. So it could be, depending on who you are, it could be a win-win. And there are other programs, for example, in Bermuda, and in Europe, where I am in Portugal, uh, as well as other parts of Europe, but Portugal is is quite attractive right now for for, for that benefit. So, with, with all this said, we we did talk about a lot of stuff today. If if our listeners wanted to yeah. you know, learn more about you, uh, what you have going on, or maybe they have some international tax issues that they need to have sorted out, um, before I ask that question, who who is your ideal client? Well, so that's that's a great question. So, in terms of the outbound because this podcast is targeted at a U.S. market, right? So in terms of people from the U.S., uh, I have employees and I have business owners. In terms of employees, we don't really deal with anybody who makes less than 150, 200K uh, just because that's where we fit in the marketplace. And, you know, they are wherever. So I have some people working with, some of the big tech firms, for example, uh, out, of, out of the U.S., and they're all over the world. And we help them in their negotiations with stock options and vesting schedules and tax efficiency and stuff like that. So that's on the employee side. In terms of the employer side, a business owner who already has some sort of traction, so it's not a startup, really, and they're probably into the high six, if not seven figures, and they are expanding or they're doing business outside of the U.S. And so we work with them both on the structuring or the, or the planning as well as the compliance and doing the tax returns on the back end. So those are our typical outbound clients. Gotcha. Gotcha. And if anybody listening to this podcast you know, falls into that category and needs assistance with foreign taxation issues, what would be the best way for them to get in contact with you? 
So my website, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, if you can find me on LinkedIn, but my website, htj.tax, just simple, htj.tax. All right. So we're going to go ahead and drop that into the show notes uh, below for everybody who is listening. Uh, Darren, wanted to thank you for coming on the show today and dropping all this knowledge on us uh, regarding foreign tax issues. I know we, we come across those often. I'm sure some of our listeners do as well. And uh, thanks again. Thomas, Brandon, thank you guys for the opportunity. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.